Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 25th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And this weekend we found out that if you were recasting Casablanca, Bernie Sanders would make a terrible Inspector Renault. Here's how Claude Rains originally played the inspector. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. And here's Bernie Sanders' bizarro audition. Well, I think it's outrageous, but it is not a great shock to me. I think uh, it's what we talked about six months ago. I mean, there's no question to my mind, and I think uh, no question to any objective observer's mind, uh, that the DNC was supporting Hillary Clinton, was in opposition to our uh, campaign. So I'm not quite shocked by this. But you don't need an illegally obtained, probably Russian-backed effort to expose the private conversations of a private entity to tell you so. You could have just looked at the debate schedule. Let's see, uh, Byron Allen Comics Unleashed, a DD7 commercial. Oh, and then there's the Democratic debate. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz is out. Their finance chairman shown to have found Bernie's lack of faith disturbing. And the DNC is a kind of Death Star. Let's see. What else? What else? What else? They got mad at MSNBC a couple times. Uh, they bitched about the seating arrangements of a donor ophthalmologist. There was a ticket request to Hamilton for seven tickets. It was recommended they split it up between a four and a three request. Ooh, that's juicy, juicy stuff. The fact is that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was unpopular to begin with. Every chair of every political organization puts their finger on the scale. The good ones just don't smudge it with fingerprints. But the big reason why Wasserman Schultz is out might not be just the few revelations in the emails. It might be that the Russians have a lot more and could dump them on us later on. So might as well cauterize the wound now. It is a shame Truly, that national committees are not honest brokers. Democracy would be better if they were. But what do you expect when you put lifelong politicians in positions of adjudicating elections between candidates, candidates with whom the very politicians have emotional ties, have interests riding on, have big histories with? A lot of us were critical of Rance Priebus at the RNC for not doing enough to stop Trump. But now a lot of those same people are being critical of the DNC for intervening at all. And Bernie is no babe in the woods. He knows how to play politics. He cast himself as an insurgent, and rightly so. He was anti-establishment. Well, the DNC was that establishment. In some ways, political parties want the impossible from their national committees. We want them to be both honest arbiters and hands-off referees, but we want them to also produce the strongest general election nominees. We want them to reflect the will of primary voters, consequences be damned. We say this because we believe so strongly in the democratic process, yet the evidence we're waving around today is obtained from an autocratic foreign government breaking into private emails, probably. The DNC did not commit any crimes, by the way. The hackers did. 
I do not prefer living in a state of ignorance. I'm glad I know that all this happened, what with those crazy Hamilton ticket requests and all. But I have a big problem outsourcing my insight to the likes of Vladimir Putin and Julian Assange. On the show today, it is a spiel, a bonafide spiel. In fact, it's the return of the Trump anxiety hotline. And in the early morning hour, we will post another spiel, an AM spiel. Last week, we had the RNC rapid response. This week, we're going with DNC quick and dirty dissections. But first, before you gobble up any more political news, consume this news about politicians engaged in consumption. So if you watch these political campaigns, my God, the candidates are just eating each other for lunch. And they claim that each other is really bitten off more than they could chew. I'm done. I know rule of three, but we're talking about candidates and food. And if we're going to talk about candidates and food, we've got to talk with Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast. And his latest episode is about candidates and food. Hello, Dan. Hey, Mike. So the Sporkful, what you found out in this episode is what you find out every episode. The theme that runs through the sporkful, unstated though it is, is that food is about culture and is about bonding people together. And so that is the bottom line. Candidates need to eat. We need to see them acting normal around food because the theory goes, we want to relate to them. This campaign is like everything else with this campaign, turning that on its head, isn't it? Yeah. Like you say, Mike, food is a shorthand for authenticity. It's like, well, if this guy or, or woman can eat a cheesesteak just like I do, then they must be a normal person and I might relate to them. So food has often been used in campaigns as a way to do that. But there's also a long history of food gaffes and things going horribly off the rails when candidates try to eat and make a mess or order the food wrong or eat the food wrong. You know, we can get into that. And I think because of that history of gaffes, both candidates seem to have decided to play it safe. Yeah. And they are consciously choosing not to eat in front of us. But this isn't why that both candidates are at historically highs for negative, but it plays into why they are. They're so, well, maybe not Trump, but Hillary Clinton, let's take her, is so much more afraid of doing something wrong. It prevents her from doing something right or relatable. Let's hear how she talked to Stephen Colbert about a really obvious question if you've lived in New York or Chicago. You, know, you born in Chicago, yeah. senator from New York. Right. Chicago style pizza or New York style pizza? <laughs> and don't worry, you won't offend anybody. Anyone with this answer. No, nobody. Why don't you tell me during the commercial break? Yes, I'm not going to tell a soul publicly, but I'll whisper it in your ear. Okay. Now, as you point out in the show, how could you not have an opinion on this? And you talk to Jonathan Prince, who's a political expert, who says it's fine to punt. But still, how could you not have an opinion on this? Right. Yeah, I guess it's fine to punt, but it's a missed opportunity. Right. You know, like if you want to show people that you are, quote unquote, a regular person, like any human being who has lived in both New York and Chicago, as Hillary Clinton has, has got to have some opinion yeah. about the difference in pizza. Like the idea that she's going to lose voters because she picked one city or the other, I think is crazy. And what's much more likely to happen is that if she just came out and gave an honest opinion, yeah. she'd win over more people in both cities because at least she was would come across as someone who was telling you what she really thinks. Well, clearly she remembers the Cubs hat, Yankees hat debacle, says to herself, this doesn't matter. What matters are my policy positions and the real stuff and just wants to sidestep the food issue. And she's right. It does 
doesn't matter. And yet she has historically high negatives and they're not all because of things like uh, Benghazi or the email server. Some of it's just perception. Yeah. It, well, and, and, and if she thinks policy matters, she should say, let me do a couple of the hokey things that politicians have done for years, like taking a stance on pizza or being seen eating something that might help me a little bit. Totally. And I, I just think that time and again, when like when you have rival sports teams, same thing, when a politician shows up and claims their side and says, this is who I'm, this is the team that I'm for. It's like people like that. And Mike Huckabee says this in this episode of The Sporkful. He says so often he sees politicians who are so afraid of making a mistake that their biggest mistake becomes being afraid of making a mistake. Everything in this episode solidified things that I thought about the politicians that you either have in the episode. So it's Vilsack, it's Pat Schroeder, it's uh, Mike Huckabee, or the politicians we're talking about, Trump and Clinton. Huckabee is a good politician, not because he has some great policy stances. He's just a real extroverted, likable, relatable guy. And the way he thinks about food is a real fundamental part of that. It also made me realize that perhaps the person with the smartest strategy for this, and it's not a strategy has happened, is Joe Lieberman. I mean, here's a guy who could turn down offer left and right, not kosher, not kosher, sorry, not kosher. That's pretty smart to have that. Yeah. You would think that if a a candidate was vegetarian, that would not play well among certain segments of the electorate. In fact, Ben Carson is vegetarian, and as part of the show, I interviewed the guy who runs the pork tent at the Iowa State Fair. Spanky. Spanky, right, where all the candidates come through. It's a classic photo op. They have to do it. They come, they flip pork chops, and he told me Ben Carson was the worst pork chop flipper he had ever seen. And I was a like, man with a surgeon's precision. Right? <laughs> but, he's, but he's a vegetarian. Yeah. He never flipped a pork chop. But, uh, but but that excuse doesn't play so well in Iowa. Yeah. They'll accept kosher. I once did a story on, on Dennis Kucinich, who's vegan, and he was campaigning in Wisconsin. And it got in the way. It certainly got in the way. But, you know, he's not one of these guys who's campaigning on the relatability issue. And all these other people that we're talking about did not win, did not win the highest office that they aspired to, which brings us to Trump. You mentioned, I think there's one photo in existence of him actually eating. Right. The the famous Trump taco bowl tweet. You see see him giving a thumbs up in front of the taco bowl. He's not eating it. When he clinched the nomination, they shared a photo of him looking like he's about to dig into some McDonald's, but not actually eating it. But when he, uh, in 2008, when he was with Palin, he was eating that pizza that they talked about He did eat pizza with a knife and fork, yes. Yes. So that was 2011. Oh, 2000, right, 2011, he ate pizza with a knife and fork. But if you look at photos of Trump, I think he's gained a lot of weight. I don't know if you've noticed this. And he also is always lashing out, uh, studies show that conservatives have a higher propensity to find things disgusting. He's always lashing out about how disgusting people are and how disgusting they're habits are. And I think it's all a stew that's part of his uh, overall psychosis, where he does not want to eat. He does not want to be seen as eating. And he's really careful about how people photograph him because I think he lives in fear of being exposed as a somewhat chubby, chubby man. Yeah. He talks quite a lot about other people's weight. Yes. He also is a germaphobe. Yes. Which I think is part of the reason why he never wants to sort of get his hands dirty in front of other people. He doesn't like, he had to really be persuaded to work the rope line at all at his campaign events and shake a couple hands. Then he has to immediately get like hosed hosed down with Purell (laughs) to be able to sleep at night. And he also said one of the reasons he he loves fast food, he loves McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's. Part of the reason why is that he feels that the food is cleaner, quote unquote, cleaner there, not in terms of like pesticides or whatever the hell else they put in, but because their businesses would be destroyed by one instance of 
E. coli or right. something. So and, and facts actually don't match that. Let's look at Chipotle. Let's look at Jack in the Box. Let's look at all these places that have instances. So and also they're not cleaner, are they? And and the meat they use before they even get to the store could be contaminated. So it's just classic Trump logic, right? <laughs> but he has convinced himself that he is somehow cleaner and less disgusting by eating McDonald's. And is the reason <laughs> is is the reason that Trump uh, skates on the fundamental reason why we want politicians to eat to be relatable is that Trump's image and his brand was never that in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like Trump, whatever you're going to say about him and his campaign, like the guy is an extraordinary performer. Yeah. Like he's a great communicator and he has that talent. Look at a guy like Mike Huckabee. You know, Mike Huckabee is so warm and personable in conversation. And you you almost forget that the guy doesn't believe dinosaurs existed. So... (laughs) You know, and then you talk to a guy like Tom Vilsack, who could, without any notes, give you a two-hour lecture on the finer points of United States agricultural policy. Yeah, what but, a joy that would be. <laughs> I tune in for that podcast. <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, is dull. He's a little dull to listen to. And so um, we uh, pick our candidates in large part on their ability to communicate. Yeah. And so my last question is, you spend some time on talking about the dangers of the corn dog. Mm. Why Michelle Bachman was uh, pictured with a corn dog. Candidates agree, just don't eat a corn dog. Why is this not true of just all tubular or cylindrical foods overall? What's special about the corn dog? I have a theory, but to you. I mean, I'm trying to think of other foods because, you know, other other cylindrical foods, like corn on the cob, you don't eat by sticking the thing right into your mouth. Right. Hot dog, you don't eat by, it's not quite, it's, I, I think of all phallic foods, corn dog may be king. Well, this is the thing. I think because of the stick and the stick placement, you hold it by the stick. And so the full tube of the corn is readily apparent. But a hot dog, though a cylindrical food, you put it in the bun. A smart politician might cup his or her hand around the end of the bun so you don't see so much uh, cylinder in one's face. But the corn dog, there's no avoiding that. Yeah, it's it's there's just no <laughs> Rick Perry also ate a corn dog and I mean the number of of uh memes and would-be memes and gifts that have been created with Michelle Bachman and Rick Perry eating corn dogs. It's a cautionary tale for us all. I guess there is one other rule of food which uh, reared its head in a way in uh, of, of at least one of the candidates in this race. Don't chase a man on the New Jersey boardwalk while wielding an ice cream cone. It's just a bad look. <laughs> Chris Christie once did that. Would he have been better off if it was uh, one of those you know, popsicles that were encased? Uh, like, like with magic shell? Yeah, mean? yeah, yeah. Yeah, magic yeah. shell or like the hard, the hard the creamsicle. Yeah. yeah. That, would, that would be better, yeah. If, his, if he had a good advance man, he would have swapped out the dripping right. ice cream cone and given him the bonnet. You know, one thing I didn't get into in the episode, but I'm curious to pick your brain on Chris Christie. You remember the whole thing that kind of caught fire on the web for a few days earlier this year when Christie was photographed, I think it was at a basketball game, mm-hmm. and he had a box of M&Ms in each hand. Yeah. And he was pouring one box of M&Ms into the other box of M&Ms. <laughs> M&M consolidation. Right. I forget, were they the same? Was one peanut, one I think plain? they were the same. The same. Both original flavor. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's used to movie theater size portions. Well, yeah. So first of all, do you think that that would have gotten as much of a response online if he were not overweight? Clearly not. It wouldn't have even occurred to anyone as being anything that was notable. I, I think there's no chance. And why do you think he was doing it? 
I mean, this we've probably all done something like that, which is food consolidation, and you make whatever calculations. I mean, I was just the other day consolidating seltzer, and I had to say, well, this one's a little flatter. Do I want to do this? Sometimes I consolidate milk, and you got to weigh one or two percent. You weigh your expiration dates. M and M's are the perfect consolidating food because they're all the same. There's you don't have any of these considerations to take into account. So if his food consolidation methods reflect his governance methods, I think we would all be fine. Unfortunately, they don't. <laughs> what do you think? Wait, you consolidate different types of milk in your refrigerator? Sometimes when I need the space. Like if you have, why do you have cartons of different percentages open at the same time? I buy them at different times and I will buy a 2% for the people in my house who like the two. And I'll buy a whole milk for me because I go buy I just want the coffee to achieve a certain color. My theory is that you could pour in an ounce of 2% or a third of an ounce of whole and get that same color so it's all the same. So because of this and because of my perhaps unorthodox way of looking at how milk should interplay with coffee, I'll have different levels of milk throughout the uh, refrigerator. Sounds exhausting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But if you get it right, oh, so sweet. (laughs) So uh, getting back to Chris Christie, I would say I definitely agree that there would not have been as much of an issue made if he wasn't overweight. And I actually, it bothers me when people people make fun of him for being fat because I feel like, first of all, like it's just a kind of, in the world of humor and comedy, like it's such a cheap joke. Yeah. It bothered me that people were making fun of Christie for that M&M consolidation technique because I think it makes perfect sense. You know, like, why do you want to be holding two boxes yeah. of M&M's? Yeah. It's just it's inefficient. It's annoying. You want maybe he's also hand. thinking of the optics. Like, if you're pictured holding two boxes, right. it looks bad. Right. So you consolidate. That's probably—if he wasn't a politician, he might not have consolidated. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the same thing, like, we get into this in this episode of The Sporkful where, like, Mitt Romney dropped a pork chop at the Iowa pork tent and— Got just lambasted, and 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 what happens when this these things happen is is that it feeds into the existing narrative, and people use it is confirmation bias. These are to confirm their pre-existing opinions. So the narrative of Romney was this guy's out of touch. He's stiff. He's phony. He's rich. Yeah. And so when he dropped a pork chop, everyone said, you know, look at this guy trying to be normal and failing. But in reality, like a- any person who grills a lot and likes to grill in their backyard, has dropped something before. Yeah, I had that exact thought. Uh, The whole idea of the pork tent portending poorly for his electoral chances because it fit an existing narrative, quote-unquote. But it also fit the exact opposite narrative. Right. So, yeah, Mitt Romney is a little stiff, fancy pants. So, therefore, he would pick up the pork chop or he wouldn't. I think this guy who we like to make fun of did something that was a mistake, and therefore, we found a reason to make fun of it. Right. It convinces us that our pre-existing opinion was right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. These kind of digressions you will find <laughs> on the Sporkful podcast. Dan Pashman is the host of the Sporkful from WNYC Studios. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. It is the return. We're here right now. We're manning the phones on the Trump Anxiety Hotline. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. Have you seen the new polls? Trump got a bounce. He got a six-point bounce. And everyone in the media went on and on about his train wreck of a convention. Turns out it wasn't a train wreck. Here are the polls. CBS, Trump up by one. CNN, Trump up by three. LA Times, Trump up by four. Trump is up. 
Well, I'm here to allay your anxiety, but I'm not here to lie to you. It may very well be that the polls are accurate and Trump is up by a little within the margin of error. But candidates tend to get a convention bounce. The average bounce is around five points. Another way to look at this is in 2012, Nate Silver of 538 pointed out that after the challenging party's convention, i.e. the Republicans this year, the party out of power, after that convention, polls overstated the standing of that candidate by a whopping 14 points relative to their actual finish. Also, there's the fact that polls in July and August, usually around convention time, are historically more inaccurate than polls before the summer and polls after the summer. Weird. The big thing to remember, though, is that one party had a convention and the other one didn't. I would guess that in any court case, if the plaintiff were allowed to present his opening and closing arguments and introduce direct testimony without cross-examination, the plaintiff would win almost all the time. In elections, historically, since 1968, every candidate that had the first convention led after that convention, the only exceptions being Bob Dole and George McGovern. Mitt Romney led Barack Obama in 2012 after the Republican convention. Even Walter Mondale pulled into a tie with Ronald Reagan in 1984. And while I wouldn't wish Walter Mondale's eventual electoral fate on my worst enemy, I think that might be character building for Donald Trump. All right, let's see who else is calling. Hi, Hotline. Okay, okay, we got the polls, but you always say don't just look at the raw polls and the numbers. We have to go by the sophisticated stats and the gurus who build models and regressions and algorithms. These models, they're much better predictors. Well, 538's model right now, their polls-only model, the one that was most accurate during the primary, says Clinton is up by only 53 to 46 That's close. That's too close. Well, the polls plus model has Clinton up 58 to 42, which is, yes, not exactly anxiety alleviating, I grant you. But how about the New York Times upshot? Their model has Clinton up 68 to 32 and the betting markets around 67 percent Clinton. But let's put the betting markets aside. Here's a critique I have of the upshot and 538 which I like in general, but they don't include Trump's lack of infrastructure, specifically get out the vote. So to win an election, you have to get people to vote for you. Duh. To lead in polls, you have to get people to tell voters they'll vote for you. These seem very similar, but there is a big difference, and that difference is the actual part about voting. And that's where get out the vote comes into play. We have a really hard time calculating how well different campaigns run their get-out-the-vote effort. We don't know what the difference is between a good one and a mediocre one. It might even be the case that a de minimis get-out-the-vote operation is 95% as good as a really great get-out-the-vote effort. But with Trump, we seem to have no get-out-the-vote effort. The upshot, or 538 model, has not built into it any aspect of what happens without even a competent, maybe even any, get-out-the-vote effort. It just assumes the Trump campaign will have at least what political campaigns usually have. So that's just one factor that favors Clinton a little bit beyond what those predictive models are saying. All right, who else is on the line? Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. I'm calling about doom. I'm calling about gloom. The doom and gloom message that Trump expressed at the convention that we were told wasn't optimistic enough for Americans. But I'm feeling doom and gloom. I think it might be registering. 
things are bad. He does seem to be tapping into the real feeling of America. No? No. Let me quote Republican pundit David Frum. He had an interesting article in The Atlantic a day after the RNC. He says... The political observer Michael Barone warned in 1992 that Pat Buchanan will go nowhere in politics because Americans aren't angry people and they don't trust angry people with power. That's a powerful and enduringly true comment. But I'm going to complicate matters a little bit by noting that Michael Barone is very much a working political expert to this day, and he is not exactly playing that tune. After the RNC, he said, When two-thirds of voters think the nation is not moving in the right direction, pessimism does not go against the grain. Aha. But I'd like to note that for years and years and years, the majority of Americans have thought the country was going in the wrong direction. Barack Obama was handily reelected in 2012. And at this point in 2012, twice as many Americans said the country was in the wrong direction as the right direction. They didn't just vote for the incumbent party. They voted for the incumbent himself. I also think that doom and gloom, although stats around sky-high crime, aren't going to play. Not because the stats aren't accurate. I mean, they're not accurate, but you can't beat a feeling with a stat. But I submit that the feeling isn't very widely or deeply felt that Americans feel victimized. Why? Because Americans aren't victimized. Since the crime rate fell by half since 1992, you just don't have people who know crime victims, whose neighbors were crime victims, who themselves were crime victims. It could be something a politician asserts. It's not actually something that people feel. Maybe they feel it in terms of worldwide terrorism, but not in terms of murder. Other points, a lot of the anger in America, we keep saying they're angry blue-collar workers. Blue-collar workers are 40% Hispanic and black. Another source of anger is the Black Lives Matter movement. Many people in that movement are, of course, angry. But Trump is polling at 6% among the black community. And the last thing I'd like to point to is the GOP consultant Mike Murphy has a good new podcast. He opposes Trump. And here's what he says about anger and change. So right now we are very well in the middle of a change election. Change is in the air. But change without hope has not been successful in presidential politics. Hope is what makes change more palatable. Hope to some degree, leavens the dangers of change. It's all an opening for Hillary Clinton and the Democrats this week. All right, let's see who else is calling. Hey, Hotline. Um, God, this is kind of a personal issue. It's not really about my anxiety about Trump per se, but it's about my anxiety about the people who support Trump. What am I supposed to do when I'm chatting with a guy at a bar and things are going so well. He's educated. It's all going so well. And then all of a sudden he's voting for Trump. And what do I do? Do I have to walk away? It's one thing for my country to go down the toilet, but then I mean, come on. And now I can't date people either. Well, on the one hand, I could recommend that you date only college-educated Hispanic women. They're extremely unlikely to vote for Trump, but that might not help you that much. You should look for the warning signs like uh, power ties, slick back hair, wingtip shoes, those white collars, answers to the name Donald Trump Jr. And listen, you're not much better off than Bernie bros. Yeah, they seem attractive in the moment, but three or four months of that droning on and on, all the grievance, at least Trump people know how to handle success. And if you're a Slovenian model, they just might make an honest woman out of you. They won't help changing a diaper, 
But look on the bright side. If you do marry into the Trump family, you and your sister-in-law, Ivanka, can talk Democratic politics. Last question. Trump anxiety hotline? Listen, bottom line, sure, Trump might lose. Might. But even if Trump winds up losing, I feel much, much better if he were a more normal candidate. Going through this is not worth it. I argue it is. Look, the moderate, hypothetical, non-anxiety-producing candidate, he just wasn't getting through the gauntlet of the Republican Party in 2016. Even if he did, even if, let's say, you think that guy is Jeb or Marco. So would you rather have a probable loser to Hillary Clinton, even if the loser really scares you, or two, a probable winner against Hillary Clinton, and you know that this winner won't address global warming, probably thinks it's a hoax, has a tax plan that would benefit the rich, wants to scrap Obamacare, is against legal abortion, is against the Iran deal, is against normal relations with Cuba. I prefer Hillary Clinton's stances on all those issues over all the Republicans who ran. But even if you don't, let's say you're a moderate Republican and your anxiety is specifically Trump-related, even you should want Trump to wreak a little bit of destruction within your party because you guys need a house cleaning. And to do this, you need to draw out the ethno-nationalists, you need to draw out this know-nothing rhetoric, and you need to let them crash the bus. Because if you want to perform a real exorcism, you have to tease out the devil before you can ever purge him. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson avoids being photographed with animals, children, or frozen lemon pie pops. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. There are no known photos of him eating a turkey leg or any drumstick-related byproduct. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has been known to eat a snow cone with a knife and fork. The gist. We travel with a mini blender for all offerings of chicken skewers, shish kebabs, and popsicles. We're currently at 5,000% recommended daily allowance of bamboo and are considering becoming a panda. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.